0: Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And we are back with anthropologist Brian Fagan as we talk about ice ages. Brian, a little ice age or a big ice age, how long does it take from its beginning to its end to complete?
1: The big ice age, well, what typically happens is when it cools, it cools slowly, but when it warms up, it warms rapidly. And. Over the last million and a half years, um, the cool-downs have been slow. We don't know how long, maybe 100,000 years in many cases. But the warm-up of the last ice age, which ended around 15,000 years ago, was, if you really simplify it, about 3,000 years, and that's pretty short. Okay. 4,000 years. So it's not like it's it's it's
0: going to take two years to do or anything like that.
1: No, no, it's much longer than that. Geological time moves slowly. Human time tends, today, certainly, to move much faster.
0: What What happened in Siberia when they found that woolly mammoth frozen, flash frozen with uh, food still in its mouth? Something tremendous must have happened.
1: find. When you get, I mean, basically what it was was deep frozen. And when you get that, the issue uh, is how to preserve it, because you've got to basically keep the thing frozen solid, And those things are big until you can get it to facilities where you can store it and study it at leisure. Um, And the very early mammoths were found. uh, They had great difficulty with this and did a lot of research up in Siberia. Today, of course, they're much more sophisticated about it. And we know a great deal about what were very remarkable animals. The most famous deep-frozen find is, of course, Otzi the Iceman, who was a um Bronze Age man right. found in the Alps in Italy about twenty years ago and he was deep frozen in a glacier and was taken to a fridge or deep freeze and is being studied systematically and has been for years and they now know that for example he died in a fight. They know the diseases they have we know in fact we know more about his health than he did. So there is a lot you can do.
0: Now, when when the Ice Age starts, kind of take us through it. Let's assume we're living in that time period. What's happening?
1: Now, which one are you talking about? The Little Ice, a
0: little age, the ice, age? ice age? A Little Ice Age. Which Well, which ones happen more often? The little ones?
1: The little ones, yeah. What you get are a series of much colder winters. The growing season shortens. You get uh, ice... Uh, You know, certainly with big ones, you get ice sheets in Scandinavia and North America expanding. You get sea levels falling. And then as things warm up, the ice sheets shrink, like say on the Alps, and sea levels rise. Uh, It may be news to know that 15,000 years ago, the global sea level was 300 feet lower than it is today. And Siberia and Alaska were joined by a uh, low land which you could walk from Siberia to America. The England was joined to the channel, uh, to the continent. There was a huge continental shelf off Southeast Asia. So the amount of open water between Australia and Asia was only about 50 miles. So the world was very different.
0: You talk about how the monsoons, these incredible torrential rainstorms were important during the little ice age. How come?
1: Well, what happened was that ice ages, uh, sorry, monsoons basically are closely tied to El Niño, which is this condition in the southwest Pacific which causes uh, sea levels, sea temperatures to warm and you get a very complex atmosphere ocean relationship working. And one of the effects of this is to cause monsoon rains to dry up. So you have years when the monsoon rains are practically non-existent. And the most famous one of this was in 1877, where the monsoon failed so badly that a million and a half Indians who depended on monsoon rain for their farms Starved and died. And in northern China, the same happened that people were selling their children in the streets for food. I mean, these things can be catastrophic. And one of the things about today, of course, is that infrastructures are much more sophisticated and these sort of things are much rarer, but you still get major famines in areas like Somalia and Ethiopia, which are very much affected by monsoons. So monsoons are a major, major factor in global climate.
0: And and let me ask you, when you said they were selling their children for food, were they selling them for money to buy food, or were they selling them as food?
1: No, they were selling them for money to buy food. Okay.
0: Oh, my God, yeah.
1: Because when when famine happens, prices of grain obviously rise and the people who get affected the most are the poor. And if they live at the subsistence level out in the country, the classic way of doing this is to move in search of food. And what we've got today are severe droughts. We've got um, shortages of food and so on. And the result is you get migrations of people on a large scale, because today there are many more people in the world. And this makes which you might call ecological refugees, into a much bigger problem.
0: You spend a lot of time writing about fishing. Tell me why.
1: Fishing is a fun subject. I'm not a fisherman, uh, oddly enough. I got into this because I worked in Africa many years ago, as you said earlier, mm-hmm. and one of the things we found were a lot of fish bones. And fish bones are extremely difficult to identify. And we had in this collection, and I had to learn how to do it, uh, a lot of catfish, who were bottom fish, we have them in America, of course. Yep. And we were able to establish that these people were eating large numbers of catfish. And this got me into a study of the history of fishing. And fishing has been enormously important in human history. I mean, the earliest people to catch fish were humans about... Two million years ago, what they probably did was to catch catfish in shallow water when legs dried up. They literally just picked them up.
0: Picked them up, yeah.
1: Yep, but later on, the traditional measures of fishing, which are nets and hooks and things like that, were developed very early on, as was the the technique of drying fish and salting them which are old technologies. One of the most remarkable things about fishing that I discovered is that the technology, the basic technology of fishing until the modern era with its trawlers and diesel engines and uh, industrial-scale fishing really was remarkably similar to that of the Middle Ages. The Atlantic cod fishing used very, very simple technology. And really what's happened is that... Um, The real thing about fishing has been the intensification of it. Because when you started getting civilizations, you had to supply urban markets. And therefore, you got villages organized to catch fish, dry and salt them, and sell them in markets and cities. Because many of the world's civilizations depended very heavily on fishing.
0: Brian, aren't we today fishing too much, where we're pulling out so much fish they don't have a oh, chance yes, to reproduce. Are. Uh,
1: there was a major crisis of fishing in the ocean. Overfishing has been a problem, oddly enough, in the North Atlantic with cod for two or 300 years. Even in Victorian times in England, there were complaints about uh, trawlers taking fish from the seabed and destroying the habitat of the fish. And today the problem is a major crisis because you've got extremely efficient trawling technology, you've got extremely efficient electronic technology Mm -hmm. for locating fish, and you've got remarkable technology now for refrigerating and deep-freezing fish and processing them in the ships out in the ocean.
0: Oh, when they throw those those nets nets out, they get a lot of fish.
1: They stay out there with a lot of fish, and they... Uh, go out in remote areas like Antarctica and catch fish like crazy. Because the other thing is we're eating more and more fish, to which the response has been to farm fish, which is a partial solution. But that's a whole set of other can of worms, uh, pollution and so on and sure. so forth. So there was no easy answer.
0: And also this GMO, what they call frankenfish, I'm opposed to that. I, that, that could be a disaster.
1: It could indeed, yes. Um, I don't know much about modern fishing. I know about Asian. But I know that overfishing was a problem uh, at least a 100 years ago. Why do of course, you... the cod fisheries of the North Atlantic were a disaster.
0: You talk about anchovies being important to the Peruvians. Tell me about
1: that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, they were. And it's a very interesting, indirect story. Anchovies are the staple diet of seabirds on the Peruvian coast. Okay. But every time there's an El Nino, the anchovies move, and so do the seabirds. So the anchovy fishery, which was enormous, is was decimated, and that resulted in serious problems for early Peruvian civilizations of, say, 2,000 years ago, depended heavily on it. But there's another side to anchovies, which came up in the 19th century. If you get anchovy uh, waste, it is in mittens. It is enormously effective fertilizer with a very high natural nitrogen content. And a huge export industry developed from Peru to Europe in the 19th century because at the time there were no artificial uh, fertilizers.
0: Fertilizers, That's
1: right. So it really became a huge industry, and uh, even today is important. And it resulted entirely from the guano dropped by seabirds who'd been eating anchovies, and the seabirds go, and the anchovies go, and there's no guano. Uh, It was a huge industry. Is it still? It's still there, but it's not nearly as big as it used to be, uh, largely because of artificial fertilizers. Anchovy, fishery as such, is still very, very important, because a lot of it's used for fish meal and for animal feed.
0: Brian, kind of paint us a picture of what you think things will look like on this planet a hundred years from now, just a hundred years?
1: Well, the first thing is, thank goodness, I shall be pushing up daisies. (laughs) I will be gone. (laughs) It's going to be very grim. Um, You've got a number of things going on. You've got the deterioration of the environment. You've got very intense global warming, which is accelerating. And we've all heard these, oh, it's going to be dreadful Armageddon stories, But the fact of the matter is that it is going to be. For example, just the rising of sea levels from warming is going to inundate cities where millions of people live. Think of Shanghai. Think of Bombay or Mumbai. Uh, Think of Florida. Uh, All you need are a few categorified hurricanes going into Florida, into Miami Beach, and you may lose a city. So you've got a lot of things like that going on. Not only that, but we're threatened with a mass extinction of animals. There's been a lot of publicity lately on this. And the whole situation really depends on us humans taking very proactive steps to try and counter this. And a number of people who are not given to exaggeration have said that this impending an emergency, and believe me, it's an emergency, is probably the next world war. Equivalent to it, it's going to require massive investment, massive effort, and most importantly of all, massive changes in our social attitudes to diet and to the environment. It is a very, very frightening future.
0: It's, it's grim. And it's grim for those people a hundred years from now, isn't it?
1: It is, and for our children, a great challenge.
0: Is it fixable, Brian? Hmm? Is it fixable?
1: If there is the political will and people realize how serious the problem is, yes, we have enough time. And people like David Attenborough are the vague heroes because they've been saying this for years. In history, the lesson is, and I spend my life looking back at long periods of history, almost invariably, the only time people really do things is if they have a catastrophic situation. Evolving,
0: always after a lot the fact,
1: of die, and you have crisis. And the question is, are we smart enough to recognize the crisis ahead of time and do something about it?
0: That tsunami that hit Indonesia several years ago, that killed over two hundred thousand people, could that have been avoided? That disaster?
1: No, probably not. They could have. Um, had more effective uh, warning systems. They could have had evacuation procedures in place. But the trouble with those things is you don't get a lot of warning. And it's very difficult. It's like... um,
0: No, you just got to watch the animals head for the hills, I guess.
1: Yep. Uh, And what's very interesting is that you do... uh, One of the things we neglect, which Barry Lopez, the famous environmental author has just recently written about is that we tend to ignore traditional knowledge about the environment and some of that stuff is quite amazing. I remember walking in a African farmer's fields in Africa and he told me the use of every type of plant in his property. For medicine, for food, yep. for emergencies, for animals. It was very sobering. We don't have that sort of information today.
0: No, but boy, did they know their plants in those days, didn't they?
1: They had to, yeah.
0: I mean, that's that's how big pharma, big, big pharma has taken plants and has synthesized them. Yeah, they have. Mm-hmm. They've come on. You know, not uh, like how much? The,
1: yeah, I don't know much about that, but uh, certainly the, the medicinal knowledge of traditional people was wasn't and, and in some still is absolutely amazing
0: listen to more coast to coast am every weeknight at 1 a.m eastern and go to coast for more